Welcome to the CityDAO podcast. I'm your host, Eric Gilbert Williams. CityDAO is exploring decentralized asset ownership on chain, starting with a simple piece of land purchased in Wyoming during 2021. Each parcel of land becomes an NFT that can be owned collectively by the DAO or by individuals just like you and me. CityDAO is a DAO. In other words, it's a decentralized autonomous organization, meaning that land governance, treasury, and other things, including this show you're listening to right now, are all managed by the community. Check out the FAQ at citydow.io to learn more, or check out the CityDAO Discord channel to get all the latest updates. Now let's get started with the show. Hey everybody, welcome back. Here with us today on the CityDAO pod is Julian Weiser, one of the core contributors, you could say, of the one and the only legendary, the DAO that got me into DAOs personally, Constitution DAO. And we're going to talk a lot about workplace distribution of labor. And uh, there's a lot, a lot of subjects that we're going to dive into. But first, for anyone who isn't quite familiar, if you've been living under a rock, that is to say, I'll give you the 30 second recap summary. Julian, of course, can correct me on anything that I say wrong about what Constitution DAO accomplished and why that's relevant moving forward into this discussion. So this will be a little bit longer of an intro than normal, but it's, uh, it's important too. So for starters, there's 13 surviving copies of the original Constitution of the United States of America. Now, last year, 2021, one of those 13 surviving copies was announced that it was going up for auction through Sotheby's. And this is one of the world's largest and most prestigious auction houses. We're talking like Picasso level stuff. Don't mess with that, right? So in, in November, if I remember correctly, it was around November 2021, a group of about 30 excited and pioneering people, including Julian here today, I got together and, you know, through a, a lot of discussions and who knows exactly how that went, they said, hey, let's buy the constitution and let's see if we can essentially own and let other people have a, a fractionalized ownership of the governance and, and decision-making governance power over what to do with that constitution, with this historical document. So me, along with about, I'm not sure how many, maybe 20,000 other people, we got together and we said, hey, that's a great idea. So shut up and take my money. So that's what I did and <laughs> threw it across a the interweb here to into a wallet and hope for the best. So we all forked up the dough. Essentially, there ended up being about $45 million or in that range put together. That was, I think, roughly in about two weeks time frame. So really record breaking. And for context, that's about twice as much money as the most successful Kickstarter funding campaign in history of Kickstarter. And it's about three times as much as Ethereum raised when it launched, putting Constitution Dow in the top 20 most successful crowdsourced projects in the history of humanity as per Wikipedia. So you can check it up for yourself. Uh, maybe I'll put that in the show notes for the episode. And the auction happened. And for the first time ever, Sotheby's auctioned off a number of uh, items in Ethereum as a currency, not different items in the constitution, but there were, I think, about 10 items that went up for auction in Ethereum on live television that you know went out to the world. So talk about mass adoption and global presence here. But lo and behold, the constitution DAO did not win the constitution. And none other than Ken Griffith himself, the CEO of Citadel Hedge Fund, the same hedge fund for which was targeted by the epic and historic GameStop run, Ken won the auction in what I think is a grab your popcorn type of ongoing epic saga that ain't anywhere done from over. It's not over yet. Uh, we'll see what happens next. Who knows? Now, everyone who pointed up the dough for the Constitution, Dow got their refunds, of course. Some people went in different directions and there was this whole secondary market thing, which we're not going to talk about today, but it did happen. And that's a whole side story. <laughs> Let's just not touch that one with a 10-foot pole. In my opinion, Constitution Dow made a absolutely global impact and created a side-by-side -side, uh, that crested side-by-side -side with Sotheby's doing Ethereum auctions on live TV while, you know, continuing the GameStop saga, in my opinion. I was visiting my parents when the auction happened, so I controversially commandeered the dinner table along with their my mom's iPad and threw it on the table so we could watch on live television while we ate dinner. 
super grateful to have been a part of all of this and uh, watching that. I mean, I've never seen a Discord channel go so fast ever in my life. You can't even read what happened until the screen's filled with new posts. So with that, uh, I'm going to end this super long intro and we can segue into the relevant topics for today. So Julian, thanks for bearing through this one. And uh, if, if there's anything I said wrong there, please correct me. But it's great to have you on the show, man. How you doing? Good. Uh, thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for wanting to talk about that that experience that so many of us went through. It was really something and happy to happy to share more and answer any questions. So there's a, uh, a tweet that I think I saw on your account that was to the effect of the fractionalization of everything will reorganize the world. Yeah. I want to talk about that for a sec, because that's super important and very related to Constitution Dow, but also related to City Dow. And related to, you know, fill in the blank though as well. Yeah, sure. There's something very interesting about this idea that more people can be involved in things that historically, you know, a very small group of people have been involved in. That could be owning a historic object or, or you know, having some control over, you know, what happens with a historic, historic artifact. It could be a sports team you know, a city. So I'm very, I'm very curious, sort of what, what kind of questions you have there. I'm happy to take it in any direction you'd like. Yeah. Well, you know, when I, when I look into the future, if we, if we think about me growing up or anyone, any normal person growing up, I guess I'm normal. I don't know. There's certain assets in the world that I simply just didn't have access to. And there's this, you know, if, if we look at private investments, there's this accredited investors, you know, regulation that, that of course prevented access to most people to important assets that are that are critical for for wealth growing and wealth accumulation and and that's changing right now there's some interesting stuff happening in that front you could say that that's one of the one of the aspects of the world that's changing to allow access for regular people into whatever else fill in the blank and DAOs is another one of those things as well when would i have the opportunity to put up 0.25 eth in city dow and end up having a fractionalized ownership or at least governance of physical land in wyoming in conjunction with a group of people that I all get along with. It's just, you know, it is revolutionary. And and same with, you know, so many other DAOs as well. And so I wonder if we take this and move this forward, if we, if we fast forward in hot tub time machine here and go 10 years into the future, how much of the world's assets are going to be represented in a DAO ownership? And I'm wondering in your perspective, how fast do you think this is going to snowball versus maybe it's going to take a while to sort out the kinks before we see that, that snowball? Yeah, sure. So I think it's very interesting because as we're seeing this emergence of DAOs and Web3 and this sort of participate, participation economy, something that we're also seeing at the same time, which is quite interesting, is the emergence of community fundraising rounds, or also known as community rounds. It used to be that the things you'd look at, and I don't mean this in any disrespect to crowdfunding websites, but it used to be that if you looked at equity crowdfunding, that these were companies that maybe didn't typically fit a venture profile, or they were having trouble raising from traditional VCs, and they were trying to find another avenue for, for receiving funding. So those venture, those venture crowdfunding websites tended to have a little bit of a negative reputation from, from investors who might invest in a more standard way uh, as angel investors or VCs and that sort of thing. But something that we've seen in the last couple of months, maybe last year or so, has been this idea of the community round. And you see really amazing companies like Replit or Levels going out and raising millions of dollars. I believe that the cap is, is $5 million to be able to go and raise from non-accredited investors. And what they're doing is they're raising money from their users. I believe that Levels, when they did this, they raised $5 million in about six hours. They, I think the lowest amount you could contribute is 100 bucks. 
So we're starting to see this, this phenomenon that's very Web3 centric also expand beyond that. I think it's a cultural shift more than it is just a Web3 thing. I mean, I have a few angel investments in the sort of traditional sense. Of course, you know, dabbling in crypto means a lot of weird things. <laughs> Sometimes I don't even know what it means. And I think you're an angel investor as well, if I remember correctly. You know, I was listening to a pod, one of JCal's all in pods, and they were talking about how potentially DAOs could represent in that podcast. They were highlighting Constitution DAO as a, a potentially a shift, game changing or shifting the way that startups raise money and raise capital and going direct to consumer, the next level of crowdsourcing. And there's a certain transparency in, you know, joining a Discord and talking directly in an AMA with all the founders. And, you know, there's, there's a, a level of transparency you don't get in, in a Kickstarter or whatever else, fill in the blank. And I wonder if this is going to also change ultimately how capital is raised for startups. And if the definition of a startup is also going to be a little bit different too. What do you think the impacts are of having a decentralized ownership on the startup ecosystem in general? Are we going to end up in a spot where half the startups at some point are going to be community run, or is this going to be a continued niche, small fraction of the market? Well, I don't necessarily know if I, I, don't, I certainly don't think it would be niche. I think it would be different. I think that there are different models for, for different sort of initiatives. And whereas you wouldn't want to try and force a not-for-profit model onto something that is maybe a venture scale business, you probably wouldn't want to force a DAO model or a, a token model onto something that maybe it's not a fit for. You know, I think that there will be plenty of companies that won't be DAOs in the future, though I think there will be many more DAOs than exist today. And what a DAO is will also change very significantly over the next decade. I, I don't have a crystal ball where I, can, where I can tell you how that will change, but I can guarantee you that we're very much at a, a sort of a, a formulation stage when it comes to actually defining what a, what a DAO really is. You know, I think that people had had different criticisms or or questions about whether or not Constitution DAO was a DAO. What and I think that you know they, they're welcome to have these debates. I think that you know the, this is very DAO is very aspirational. When you have different levels of decentralization, that changes from DAO to DAO. There's a lot to be figured out. It's as broad a term as C corp, and I mean, look how many different C corps there are out there. Yeah, I've always saw the the DAO added to a name as a we're aiming to become decentralized or we're pushing to decentralize certain aspects. Whereas some people take it very literally as in, oh, if they say they're a DAO, then they must be completely 100% decentralized day one. And if they're not, then they're, you know, and I was like, okay, well, well, let's be a little reasonable here. <laughs> That's always been my perspective sure. on that. Yeah. I mean, you know, with Constitution DAO, this was 30, 30 some odd people who worked really hard over the span of a couple of weeks, but, you know, had tens of thousands of people in the community the broader community outside of the core contributor set who are contributing by telling their friends, creating media, just really spreading the word in various ways. And ultimately, we had a forum for people to volunteer, and we had hundreds of signups for various ways that people said they could help. But at some point, you actually can't scale that amount of help in such a short span of time. It's like, imagine if you had a more traditional startup, and you started out, and you had just three people. And then a few days later, you have 30 people. And then a few days after that, you have 400 people. Uh, it just wouldn't work. You can't, you, it's very hard to develop sort of the, the process and operational culture um, that you would, you would need to be able to actually be successful there. So you end up with this position where it's like, hey, there's lots of really exciting people or people who are very excited, but you know, it, it takes time to actually onboard people and implement people. I think that many DAOs will benefit from slow growth and, and very non-chaotic growth 
early on. I don't think that you actually need to, I think you need to have momentum as a DAO, but I don't think you need to have absolute blitz scale momentum that you might need to have, you know, within a, a, a traditional startup. Yeah. And, and on that note, my day job, you could say my uh, real business that, that I spend like my, all, most of my time on, City has a passion, of course. There's a discussion that me and my co-founder have, have had more than once and we're thinking, okay, well, you know, do we go Dow route or do we go traditional VC route? And I mean, we we raised from a bunch of angel investors and then, you know, we looked at, uh, I mean, obviously to me, I love DAOs and this is the way of the future and I'm excited about it. And I want to involve the community. There's so many inherent benefits by involving a community in this degree. But if we go full DAO direction and, and try to decentralize decision-making and how the treasury works, it's almost contradictory to raising traditional startup capital where, you know, a VC might want to be, want to be on the board of directors and, and physically have control. Uh, you can't have a certain group of investors trying to control and the vast majority of the community against control, which is, you know, the whole concept. So de like decentralization to me and my co-founder, it's like, okay, well, I guess we have to pick one or the other. And I, and I haven't figured out a way that blends the two together yet. Uh, you can have certain governance, of course, set out. But w would you say that, that a founder needs to make it a, a clear decision day one if they're going decentralized like DAO direction or VC or is there a blend of two of the two together? My general take on this and... I'm actually very curious sort of what other people think, but my, my personal take on this is you're ultimately trying to solve a problem or create something new in the world. Oftentimes solving a problem is different than sometimes creating something new, which is like spotting a new opportunity or, or you're exposing people to something that they've never experienced or even considered before. And when you do that, the model sort of finds a way, right? It's kind of, do you think I want to start a nonprofit or do you think I want to cure cancer, right? I think that you say, I want to cure cancer. Okay, well, how do I want to actually go about doing that, right? Is it through early detection? Do I actually want to do something that's more preventive? Is it through some sort of biological pathway? And how am I going to go about doing this? Is it some sort of nonprofit approach? Is it some sort of community-owned data approach? In, in which case, maybe there is a DAO approach that could be really good for this, where there's some community-owned data and research component to this. But ultimately, I think you st sort of start with what you're doing and why you're doing it. And then you kind of work backwards from there. Yeah. I don't, I don't think that people typically start their thing with like, what code should I like, what coding language should I use? Right. So should you really be thinking about the structure until you sort of figure out what it is that you're trying to build? I, I don't think so. So when we look at, um, and it's just looping back to the decentralization or the, the fractionalization of everything constitution, of course, was decentralizing and fractionalizing out the governance of the constitution city DAO, of course, is physically buying land and decentralizing the, the governance and also the ownership of it and moving more into physical ownership and working out those kinks. You know, we can fill in the blank with a, a lot of other DAOs, like a sports team, like Krauss is doing some cool stuff. I'm really excited about the Blockbuster DAO launch, you know, whenever that happens to be. I'm just like, you know, been holding my breath for months here. But I wonder, what are the big things that you think are coming up for fractionalization and ownership? And just as a random example, like, I don't know if anyone's doing this or not. I have no idea. So I'm just saying on what's in my mind, like everyone's talking, you know, that, that when Lambo, when Lambo, when Moon. Well, what's stopping someone from just buying a Lambo and fractionalizing it out? And for 20 bucks, you can own a piece of the Lambo. So the answer to when Lambo is now Lambo. What do you think are the next big assets that are going to be focused on for DAOs coming up in the next bit? Sure. So my take on this is, is first off, there's there's all sorts of great sort of non-crypto initiatives around sort of fractional ownership of, of various things like race cars, of sealed copies of 
you know, the first Halo game, for instance, shoes, paintings, this is a thing that people have done. So I think that when Lambo is actually, it already happened and it was probably like a year ago or something. It's not a company that I'm, I'm involved in, but it's, it's certainly one that people seem to be quite excited about or interested in sort of automobiles and things like that. The way that I think about it is, are you accomplishing something that's culturally significant and not just sort of monetarily significant or sort of novelty significance? And what I mean by that is Constitution Dow, the Constitution has a lot of meaning to a lot of people. Uh, and America has a lot of meaning to a lot of people, some of it not positive, right? So there were a lot of people who contributed to the project and wanted to be a part of it because they, in some ways they felt America had actually let them down or, or let their, you know, their ancestors down. And I thought that was really interesting how this was sort of an empowering thing for them. And obviously there were people who were extremely patriotic who also were, were very excited to support this. When I look at something like Krauss House, it's like, there's this sort of this dream of, wow, wouldn't it be amazing to be, a, you know, an owner or have some governance in a, um, you know, in a professional basketball. A lot of people who are very into sports feel that way. I actually think it's it's more interesting from sort of like an intellectual perspective versus, you know, I, I've never followed basketball, but I still think it's very cool. And I think that if you're ultimately able to sort of decentralize governance on a professional basketball team, you create sort of the internet's team, right? And that has very interesting cultural implications. You know, somebody who really loves the NBA, but they live in Europe, now they have a connection to a team because it, it doesn't feel like it's a specific Geo's team. It feels like it's now the internet's team. So back to the Lambo thing, it's like, it's very interesting in a way, but I think that this stuff where it's sort of these like major cultural institutions or cultural objects are quite interesting. There's a DAO that I'm a contributor to and uh, an investor in called Archive, A-R-K-I-V-E.net. They're really interesting because their whole focus is building on a, a decentralized Smithsonian. I mean, for folks who are not in the U.S., Smithsonian Institute is just one of the most important, probably culturally significant archives and, and, and museums. We, you know, in the United States, it's a nonprofit. The idea is to collect and preserve and display significant artifacts across all aspects of culture. And essentially what Archive is doing is saying, what would happen if we collected physical objects but didn't actually have any physical space and instead put these objects all over the world for people to interact with and experience. So you go to a museum in New York City, you walk in and wow, there's a piece that, that was acquired and you actually voted on without putting on loan into this museum in New York City or, or maybe the, the, the Boston Public Library or something like that. That I think is, is quite interesting. It is. It really is. I guess like there's no real clear answer to where this is heading or what you know, fractionization ownership is going to look like in 10 years, but we're, we're definitely going to find out one way or another. So be curious to have you on the pod again in a, in a year or so, and we can see how it went. <laughs> one thing I would just add really quickly is oftentimes we look at sort of, and, and this is not, it's not my idea, of course, but like, this is, this is an idea that I think is, is really important to think about when it comes to big changes. You know, we oftentimes look at sort of the past and try and predict the future from that. But I think like new tools cause us to just be able to create completely new things. And, you know, the thing that there really wasn't much of a precedent for Constitution DAO. And I think that the things that are sort of created with the new tools, the way that people organize together and the way that people go and accomplish things that maybe nobody would have thought to try and accomplish before, those things are going to emerge. They're not going to be things that kind of have a super strong connection or, or they won't necessarily rhyme that closely with the past. Yeah, like a little quantum leap all of a sudden. 
And this is a good segue where, so we've been talking about the, the organization of capital and the fractionization of assets. And both of these essentially lean on and require human capital in order to do the coding, to do the community, to do the, the media, to, to come up with the ideas, to manage all this. And I think this is a good segue into, I think it's called On Deck. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Your, your actual company, your real gig, I guess you could say is, is On Deck. Maybe you can share a little bit about this. This is about matching talented people in with the right companies or the right ventures to be a win-win. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So one thing that we believe in on deck is there's just such a sort of misallocation of talent around the world. If you think about all the people who are sort of stuck in jobs, they don't find very fulfilling, that sort of thing. It's, it's, it's very clear. Everybody knows at least a handful of people who are like, I kind of hate my job, but either it pays me well, or I'm kind of worried about taking the leap. There's this great deal of people who really aren't doing their best work and also aren't feeling their most fulfilled. On Deck started when my co-founder, Eric, put on a series of dinners and happy hours over a couple of years where he was essentially bringing together people who were at the earliest stages of exploration about what might be next in their careers. Maybe they were thinking about starting something. Maybe they think we're thinking about sort of exploring other opportunities that they could join. And the idea was bringing all these people together would create sort of um, an expanded sort of surface level or surface area for people to, to have sort of serendipity take place where, hey, maybe they meet their co-founder or maybe they find their next employer or maybe they find the first angel investor for their new company. So the idea really with On Deck is how do we really do the best that we possibly can to help people either either get unstuck from the place that maybe they they kind of want to like go and, and leave and go and do something more ambitious or, or more aligned with their values? And then how do we help people who are already in the place that they're very excited about continue to grow and level up? Gotcha. And do you see more and more of Web3 and DAO migration happening with these, you know, with these individuals that are looking for that leap? Do you work directly in there or? So it, it's really funny. Recently, I was talking to somebody who was looking at what was next in their career and I said, well, what do you want to do? And this is like the day after crypto had completely plummeted in terms of all the values of all this stuff and all of these different tokens, all these different projects and protocols. And they said, I, I think I want to go full-time in Web3. And I, I thought that was amazing because it really shows that there will be people who will be excited about joining and what, what I think could be very easily described as a bear market. But I would also go as far as to say that even just tech, tech more broadly is in, is in a bear market or entering one. And anybody who's entering tech or wants to start a company will be rewarded right now for getting involved and for starting things. I, I truly believe that you know the pandemic was one of the best times to start something. And I think that it's an even better time to start something now. In terms of talent migration to Web3, Web3 is very interesting in the sense that Web3 is, for most people, it starts as a part-time pursuit. It starts as a thing where you are you know, a part-time contributor to maybe one or two initiatives, or you sort of just get started by hanging out in a Discord. And then it's sort of this, it's this thing that kind of like continues to tempt you and call you and, and sort of like lure you in. I don't mean lure you in in a negative way. I mean, in the most positive way. It's, it's, very, it's very alluring. And people have this sort of ability to, to dip their toe in without having to leave their full-time job. Also, employers are more and more permissible around people doing things outside of work that are, that are sort of side projects, right? Especially in tech. So you have these, these different forces combine. And eventually, it's, it's very easy to see somebody making that transition to working in Web3 full-time. You know, personally, I don't think that I ever would. I'm too interested in 
such a wide array of things that and, and web three being one of them that I don't necessarily know if I would I would make that that transition myself, but I totally understand why people do. And I also think that for young people who haven't really built a career or reputation yet, there's an incredible opportunity to really grow quickly and you know develop a reputation in the ecosystem, especially people who are very ethical and who care about the, the non-speculative, non-flipping side of things. There's a lot to be said for we need more of those people. And if you if you are one of those people who just does really good work and cares about sort of the long-term health of Web3 and sort of what that could mean for the world, there will be a lot of opportunities for you. And are you seeing a trend of more and more matchings inside on deck with Web3 related ventures? Or is that more of just, is it, is it just been more stable and constant lately? I wouldn't say that I see anything that is, there's a market sort of change in, in terms of like more and way more people. But I think that this is a thing that started to happen maybe a year and a half ago and has been pretty steady ever since. I think that there is an element now where people are looking at sort of what's next as we see sort of this potentially looming recession. People are looking for what they might do. And I think that a lot of them are thinking, well, there's a huge amount of opportunity in Web3. It's so early on. There's just so much that hasn't been done and so many issues with it and so many flaws. And flaws not in a, a way of saying they can't be solved. These are all solvable things, the issues in Web3. And there's probably a very strong temptation to go after some of these pretty big, big issues. When I think about talent recruitment and, you know, I had um, my last venture was was in construction. I mean, this is years ago now. It feels like a past lifetime. But, you know, that was 11 years of my life and 60 staff and hundreds of hires and fires in that process. The process of recruitment back then was, you know, it had fill in the blank focuses. And one of them I could say for sure was not transparency of community and, and about, you know, dialogue. I mean, I mean, I, I shared financial statements with my general employees, which most companies don't do. So that's almost a, a big, huge leap into the realm of transparency that a lot of companies don't do. But now when we're looking at whether it's DAOs recruiting or, or other Web3 companies or crypto companies, fill in the blank, all trying to recruit and cross recruit of this talent pool. One of the things I see that DAOs offer, which a traditional venture does not, is almost an absolute transparency into any and every aspect of the venture, whatever it is. And so I wonder, in your opinion, if you think that this complete opening, this expansion of the spectrum of what transparency really means is going to have a trickle down and affect the transparency that we're going to see in other companies, you know, maybe traditional companies like your Netflixes and your Disney's and your Google's and your, you know, and your Tesla's. Are we going to see more and more and more transparency in traditional venture as a result of the transparency that DAOs are in introducing, or maybe not? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, public companies have, uh, by necessity, quite a lot of financial transparency. And there's also a reason that a lot of high growth companies don't go public. I think that part of the reason for that is the high level of scrutiny that they face, and also sort of the very short termism effect that happens when people are paying attention to the stock price, when people are paying attention to sort of quarterly earnings statements. It's a lot harder for people to think long term and uh, you know, ultimately, you know, you're hoping that you build something that you know, lasts a really long time. Because if it lasts a really long time, ideally, that means that it had some, you know, tangible positive impact on the world. I do wonder, not not just around transparency, but also around sort of having a token where there is liquidity pool. How challenging that can be sometimes. I think that there are certainly benefits, but there 
every benefit has its, has its own drawbacks as well, right? One thing that I'll, I'll say is from talking to a lot of startups as well is that when you share a lot of information, when everything is very open, it's actually very hard for people to navigate. So it becomes a uh, it becomes a sort of a, a navigation and like making sure that you're bubbling up the right things because then otherwise people get overwhelmed with too much information. And a lot of people, as it turns out, uh, really just want the information that's uh, most relevant to them. And they want to have a general sense of where things are going, but ideally they they hope that people are, you know, behaving in, you know, in, in a proper way and, and doing what's right for the organization. I think that having these these open things, for instance, around salaries, I think is really important. And again, I think this is one of those things where DAOs could potentially lead, but I also see lots of really amazing, uh, you know, non-Web3 companies doing incredible things around transparency. Cal.com. Pure was previously head of product. Yeah, Pure is one of the founders of uh, Cal.com. He was previously the head of product at OnDeck. You know, they have incredible transparency around all sorts of metrics. I believe it's Cal.com slash metrics, but, but don't quote me on that. You could also just go to Cal.com and then probably scroll down to the footer and find a link. But they have everything from sort of all of the compensation for their team through to metrics around revenue and and, and whatnot and, and usage. And I think that that's a thing that you know more and more companies will probably choose to do as a, a competitive factor. One more I'll say, sorry, is another one, which is Levels, levelshealth.com. They have just an incredible depth of updates that they share publicly. And what they do, which is quite interesting... I think this goes to show like there's uh, different levels of transparency like in the outside of a company. What Levels does is they publish all of their internal updates and investor updates and all hands calls that are one year or older. They publish them online for anybody to watch. So you can literally see what was happening at the all hands one year ago at Levels just by going to, to their YouTube channel. And I think that's really important because you do want to have some level of secrecy externally. So people shouldn't necessarily know exactly what's going on at your company. But you know, to be able to show prospective teammates, prospective investors, even just your users, sort of how you think about things internally, uh, even if it's it's a year backdated, I think is, is very valuable. So that's just another example of a very different way of approaching it. Yeah, totally. And speaking of approach, I've used the word recruitment several times in this chat so far. And it strikes me sometimes that what is the definition of recruitment going to even look like in the context of a DAO? I mean, when I joined CityDAO, I did it because I wanted to. And no one was going to stop me. I didn't do it because of a promise of a reward. I did it because I liked the project. I was genuinely, passionately, and I still am genuinely, passionately interested in supporting and being involved in this. And I can't really imagine what someone would have to offer me in order to stop. You know, that's a very powerful motivator to strike passion like this level and not expect compensation back as a result. How do you compete with that as a as a venture startup, right? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, th there's something very interesting there, which is like, you know, YC says, build things that people want, right? Very, very like obvious advice sort of in hindsight, but at the time was, was very confusing. You'd argue that still many people don't take that advice very seriously and they go off building things that nobody actually wants. <laughs> but I think that, you know, when it comes to recruiting and getting people to join your thing, it's like, build something that people want to be a part of. I mean, look at Constitution Dow, look at Krauss House, look at City Dow. These are uh, initiate archive. These are initiatives where people uh, really want to be a part of it for, for a number of different reasons, right? There wasn't work, there wasn't pay at, at Constitution Dow for even the core team, right? In fact, we said that 
you know, we weren't, we weren't taking anything and we weren't withholding any tokens, anything like that. So I think that ultimately there's lots of different ways to compensate people. Some of it's just reputational. Look at some of the people who've done amazing things after, you know, after Constitution DAO. Numerous people have started and companies and raised money, not for DAOs, but for Web3 related initiatives. One of them, uh, Austin, uh, is now the head of partnerships at Polygon. I mean, all sorts of incredible sort of things that have happened there. So clearly lots of things happen, even if you're not necessarily getting financially compensated. I think that the other thing that's that's quite interesting here is if you consider the fact that people really care about this from the perspective of wanting to see like a different thing happen or wanting to be involved with something that's like very different than what's come before. I mean, if they're successful at Krauss House, I mean, that that's huge. It, it probably changes the entire way that all professional sports organizations think about interacting with their fans, right? Same thing with archive, like the future of philanthropy and the future of, of museums is probably shifted quite dramatically if, if archive is successful. And I imagine the same thing with City Dow or, or Cabin, which is essentially trying to build a distributed city, a, a very different approach than City Dow, but, but very complementary, I'd imagine. Yeah, those guys are great. Yeah, we, we actually had uh, John on the pod, I think several episodes ago. Definitely a lot of close ties between City Dow and Cabin Dow for sure. I wonder about, let's explore this subject of brain drain, you know, and I don't know if it's applicable here. It's just a, a curiosity. And I wonder when, so the concept of brain, of brain drain, when people that aren't maybe familiar with the term is when one industry or one company is, or one country is doing something maybe subpar or, or they haven't evolved to catch up with the times and another opposing company or country or fill in the blank is being a little more efficient or more exciting or more rewarding than you know, there's a there's a talent migration, and it's natural supply and demand economics of of human resource for people to go where they're happier or where they're making more money, or ideally a both combination of both. And with what I see coming up with DAOs here, with you know decentralized ownership, with fractionalized ownership, with being able to join anything that you're really passionate about, make a difference, and join essentially in many cases a, a core team in a, in a movement like this. I wonder if the if we're if we're gonna see what would be considered as a brain drain from traditional business, uh, let's say traditional SaaS or traditional markets into the, into the DAO industry as a whole? Or if you think maybe DAOs aren't going to get you know big enough to have a notable effect on macroeconomics? So my hope is that um, sort of the opposite happens, which is we find ways to actually grow the pool of talent uh, in the world. I think there's a number of ways to go about doing this. I think one is, of course, education. Two is onboarding people who have different backgrounds than, you know, would typically work in, let's say, the startup ecosystem and let them sort of discover this, this new world. I mean, Constitution DAO had many participants who had never done anything with DAOs before. And I think you even said that, that maybe you were one of them. It was my first yeah. DAO. Yeah, all yeah, the way. <laughs> exactly. There's this element of, okay, could we actually create net new talent? And I think the answer is yes. I mean, look at this. Like, you know, you didn't do anything in Web3. Now you're doing something in Web3. Maybe you'll leave the traditional tech world behind. But I would also say that maybe there will be a lot of people who come in to fill, fill those spots as well. The type of person who's very interested in working in a security company, software security company, might not necessarily be interested in working in a, in a DAO that's related to, to real estate or a DAO that's related to art. And that's fine, right? I think that hopefully what we can do is we can create really amazing things uh, across the board and then, you know, have more people who get inspired by those things and, and feel intellectual stimulation from being a part of those things. 
and that causes more people to come online. I mean, look how you, you ask about sort of like, is there a brain drain? And I mean, there was certainly a, a brain drain to from from sort of like traditional sort of traditional businesses to tech, but then sort of everything became tech. Like there really is like the tech, it's calling something the tech industry is kind of almost a misnomer at this point because uh, everything has a, has a sort of a software or hardware where layer to it. So my, my guess is that there will be there will be less of a pronounced brain drain uh, and that hopefully more more talent will come online. And I think that you know one thing that on deck has done and, and will hopefully continue to do for, for a long time into the future and many other folks as well, Bloom Technology, for instance, other initiatives that are helping people break into tech. Ruben has a really great podcast we can we can link to about sort of breaking into tech. But yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot that could be done for like creating more talent versus versus just like shifting existing talent. That's a really interesting angle. I, I actually hadn't really considered this before. But what I think you're essentially getting at is if is could new emerging industries like DAOs, for example, not be playing with a zero sum game type market. But if we're dealing with millions and millions of people, could a DAO increase peak output or increase passion level or increase creative powers. And let's say that the average person is operating, and this is on a macro scale, of course, let's say the average person, the average job is operating at 60% of their potential. Does the concept of a DAO open up for a percent increase in the output of the general average person from 60, let's say maybe to 70 or maybe 80? Or, or can we net increase the overall passion or happiness or wealth level or engagement level of the average employee and is a DAO an opportunity that can push the whole economy forward without having a negative impact on any industries that are left behind? It's just it feels like a yes and. Yeah, it feels like a yes and in the sense that we can probably have people find more fulfilling work that does not necessarily have to do with Web3. That just has to do with sort of allocation of talent and, and distribution of talent uh, across sort of fulfilling and, and meaningful things. I will also say that and this is probably a, an unpopular opinion, there are a lot of people who just don't really want to, to do work as sort of like their, their main thing. Like, and that's totally fine as well. We need people to mind the store. It's not like we, we need everybody to go and start companies or we need everybody to go and, and, and join a DAO and, and go full-time on Web3. I think it's very important that we don't sort of be dismissive of people who want to have more sort of traditional things that they do for work or, or things that kind of, really take a, a backseat to, to other aspects of their life. So, so that's the first thing. The other is, you know, I think we also just need, like On Deck fully believes that there are far too few founders in the world. And that in order to really make things progress and do great things for, for the world and have a lot of technological advancement, what you need is, is you need more people building things. So we don't expect that all of those people are going to come from the, the workforce that's already working in tech. We expect those people will come from all other areas as well. We want to do our best to support those people who didn't go to Stanford, who didn't go to Google. We want to, we want to support those people too, but you know, there are lots of people who have non-traditional backgrounds. I dropped out of music school. You know, I, I don't have sort of a, a typical, a typical background myself. And it's something that I'm keenly aware of and, and really want to, you know, help people come online both literally and figuratively when it comes to web three and also just building things. Could you, um, I'm curious a bit, how does on deck kind of work? Like it doesn't seem like a normal talent recruitment or, or, you know, how do you even feel like what, what category of industry is this? Sure. So I'll just, I'll just give sort of a very, very high level and talk about sort of our flagship. 
We have a lot of things that we do. Probably the most relevant to uh, this audience is our flagship program, which is called the OnDeck Founder Fellowship. The OnDeck Founder Fellowship is really created with the mandate of helping people explore starting companies. And by companies, we traditionally mean startup. Startups meaning companies that will grow really fast, that have the potential to change an industry and or change society. And what we do is we help people before they have sort of made that jump and committed to building a specific product or a specific industry or working with a, a certain co-founder or co-founders. And we help them fill in the missing holes and, and find the missing pieces. You might be you know, working another job and you join on deck because you want to find, hey, what is an idea that I'm really excited about and that I think there actually is a real problem to be solved? And who might I build that with? And how might I go about building that? And who might initial customers be? Or who might be the per people who use it initially? And how, how do we go from sort of those first couple of people using it to this being a thing that might actually have some real scale and import in the world? And we help people at that exploratory phase. And then we help them beyond that as well. We have programs for people after they've raised money to level up as CEOs. We have programs to help people, help their employees be successful, help team members be successful. It's been really cool to see how somebody met their co-founder through OnDeck, met their first investors through OnDeck, and then you know they start to grow their team and they have uh, team members go through various programs in OnDeck as well and benefit from the community. And really that's what it comes down to at the end of the day is community and facilitation of community interaction so that various goals can be accomplished. Interesting. So yeah, so I'm actually probably gonna have to check this out offline and maybe have an offline dialogue with you or one of your team just on my own start, just out of curiosity because uh, moving in, like, and, and this is actually a segue because I feel like what's happening right now with DAOs and fractionization is creating almost position descriptions that didn't really exist before. The definition of a community manager five years ago was particularly different than what it is today. And the importance level of it is particularly different than it is today. I mean, what, what new Web3 related venture isn't hiring or searching out the absolute top best community developer or community manager that exists in the market? There's just not enough community managers and community developers really to go around, it seems like. And so there's new industries being created, new roles that are being created. Would you say that that's, would you echo that or do you have a different perspective? I mean, imagine, you know, three decades ago, reading a job description for something called a social media manager, right? Nobody would know what that is. Social media wouldn't exist for another, you know, 15 years or something if, if that posting had existed, you know, 30 years ago. So yes, there are more roles that are coming online that just nobody would have known or thought of prior to that. I mean, it's like a surgeon or an anesthesiologist, I should say, in the mid Middle Ages, right? It, it would have just been a completely, completely foreign concept. I think that ultimately what you, what you end up looking at is I'm very skeptical of whether or not somebody, you, you want to look at when, when somebody's hiring a community manager, in my opinion, you want to see like what they've done prior to the community manager, similar to, or prior to, to posting that role, you know, have they, have they made progress? Have they made traction? At what point are they making this hire? If they haven't done anything on their own, it makes me a little bit worried, right? Because it's like, Community is a core part of DAOs, right? Almost, in fact, maybe the most important part of DAOs, other than sort of having an overarching mission or goal or purpose, right? 
but if, if you can't do community before hiring a community manager, I think you're probably SOL to begin with. I, I kind of feel the same thing about, you know, just anybody who's building anything sort of in a startup, right? It's like, if you are looking for sort of a CTO and you don't have sort of a technical co-founder or you're, you're a non-technical co-founder, I should say, who's looking for sort of a technical partner, but you haven't accomplished anything prior to bringing that person on, it definitely makes you more suspect. Why would somebody want to work with somebody who hasn't accomplished anything on their own? Like there's plenty of things that you can accomplish before you have a technical co-founder or before you have a community manager. So I, I do think that that's one of the things that I would be looking out for when it comes to community stuff. Yeah, lots to think about there because it's almost chicken and the egg sometimes. It's like, okay, great idea. And we know there's a weakness. So we want to hire for it. But then if the target audience that we're trying to recruit looks and says, oh, we have a big weakness, I'm not going to join. Well, it's like, yeah, well, that's what we're hiring you for. <laughs> you know? Yeah, there, there's definitely an element of can you do a minimum viable community or minimum viable product, right? You don't need code to build something anymore. You need code probably to build something that's scalable, but you don't need code to like get necessarily a prototype out there. You can hack something together. I would say that unless you have, unless you are a developer yourself, the level that which technology is like the absolute core part of your business versus like some operational component or something like that would make me more worried if you were not a developer. So let's say you're building dev tools or something and you're not a developer yourself. It seems it seems like it's a, a pretty challenging thing to imagine being successful versus you're building some sort of you know logistics company, right? And maybe you've worked, maybe you've worked in some form of logistics in the past and you could hack together a no-code prototype, right? Or you can you can really, really outline here are the people that I've talked to, here are the people who have LOIs or who want to you know, be customers, and it's very compelling. But oftentimes when you see people trying to hire for a technical co-founder, they don't, they don't necessarily have those things in place. And it's hard for that person to consider wanting like a really good technical co-founder to want to work with you. And then the same thing with community, like why would an amazing community person want to join a thing that, that sucks at community, right? So I think it's like sort of good knows good. You want to sort of work on a thing where things are already like going and you can add your special value that the existing team has been able to like do without up until this point, but you're going to be sort of a, a major step function improvement. That, that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. And, and as we wrap up on this final subject here, uh, I think a, a good wrap up question and topic is just leadership. And specifically with you working with On Deck, I mean, you're a leader yourself. You're also working with leaders or helping grow leaders inside on deck and and you have a team that's doing the same. And then you ended up, of course, with 30 people and you know all the stuff you had to deal with Constitution Dow and, and the thousands, the tens of thousands of people that you're it's hard to say leading, but I mean, there's certain pressure on you that would be akin to a leadership role, so to say, even if it's not leadership per se. What sort of best practices would you or or advice would you recommend or give to people that are listening to the show right now? about leadership in the current climate? Yeah. Okay. Well, I think that the first thing is I, I'm mercifully and thankfully no longer a leader on deck. I have zeroed to one a number of different areas of the company, uh, everything from product to recruiting and our admissions team. But uh, now I'm focused exclusively on working with founders within the community and, and helping them build their companies, which has been great. It's really my, my core passion is helping founders really early on and investing in them. But what I will say is 
there is a, a lot to be said for just reading like really classic books on this subject. I think that the one that probably is less commonly discussed in Web3 that I would highly recommend is, is a book called The Score Takes Care of Itself. I believe that that was one that my my close friend and, and person who I do all my in, investing with, Tyler Willis, introduced me to. And it's a, it's a really fantastic book around the idea that if you get sort of the small things right as you're scaling, uh, you really focus on the details that sort of like the holistic thing kind of ends up taking care of itself and you, 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 you're successful because you pay attention to the little things and you don't let them sort of slide through the cracks and then kind of degrade the overall institution. I think that when you look at institutional collapse, it usually ends up with a lot of people being negligent um, in very small, unimportant ways, uh, seemingly unimportant ways, but they add up. You look at sort of some of the issues with like NASA, for instance, uh, when, when, they're, when the shuttle exploded. And they sort of did a retro retrospective or postmortem on sort of what actually happened. Richard Feynman wrote a really interesting essay about this. It wasn't in uh, Surely You're Joking, Mr. Feynman. It, it, it was the, the second book. Uh, it was called What Do You Care What Other People Think? And he talked about how these little things kind of added up to this absolutely catastrophic disaster. And I think that that's just sort of the other frame for the score takes care of itself, where it's like, if you pay attention to the little things, really great things end up happening which I think runs counter to some of the more traditional sort of things that people have said in Silicon Valley, like move fast and break things. I think that there's something to be said for that, but you also want to counter that with, we want to have a culture of excellence. And I think with DAOs especially, you really want to exhibit that culture of excellence or, or whatever that culture may be to the broader community so that people understand, like, what is this community about? What, what do they care about? What, what is it that they have in terms of like a quality bar? for the things that they put out there into the world. Those types of things I think are really important because they attract the right people to your team, be that sort of core team members, be that contributors, volunteers, contract workers, whatnot. Great tips and, and really good insight on that. I appreciate, uh, appreciate the angle and definitely uh, going to include the name to that book. It was, I think you said it was Score Takes Care of Itself, right? Yeah, that was, that was the first one. And then I believe the, the Feynman book is What Do You Care What Other People Think? We're going to make sure that we include links to both those books in the show notes to the episode, as well as some of the resources to some of the subjects we've been talking about. So everyone who's been listening in, I uh, hope you join in next time. Remember to share this episode with people that you want to, that you think need to hear it, you know, retweet it, support the show and, and remember to shout out and join the discord channels, join the conversation, join the community, be more active. If you want, your voice will always be heard. And I mean, the show is obviously right now a, a example of just putting up an idea and people latching onto it. So never underestimate yourself, step up and, and let's explore the inner leader within you. We'll see you next time on the show. And between now and then, we will see you on Discord. Thanks again, Julian, for your time. Looking forward to keeping in touch. Thanks for having me. 